Each and every one of you are here with us um, today to worship the Lord. Um, special uh, welcome to you if you're visiting with us today. Please make yourself um, at home. Um, let's, we're going to continue in our study in the book of Acts, chapter 2. And we're going to begin in verse 22 uh, this morning. But I want to review just a little bit uh, before we get into that. Uh, so just to set the scene, we've had the... Uh, crucifixion of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, um, him appearing to his disciples on numerous occasions and giving them further instructions, um, ascending back um, into heaven, but before doing so, telling his disciples, go to Jerusalem you know, and wait until you are filled you know, with the Holy Spirit. And so they go and they wait and they pray, and you have 120 um, disciples, both men and women, they're um, praying and pre- being prepared uh, for this to happen. And then on the day of Pentecost, which is one of the uh, three great celebrations in uh, the Old Testament uh, that would happen 50 days after the beginning of Passover, the beginning of the Passover week, uh, where the people would celebrate uh, this harvest festival. So they're, they're gathered together for this. We know at this time that many people would come on pilgrimages from you know, all over the world uh, to Jerusalem, they would normally come and arrive before uh, Passover would begin, and then they would stay and live there, um, you know, until Pentecost was over or a little bit past that. So they'd be there for a couple of months, uh, more or less. And then um, at this time, so there's there's lots of these people are here. These events that happened in Acts chapter two are actually going to uh, cause I think many of them to stay a lot longer <laughs> than they originally. Um, intended, because they're going to be surprised by God. So what happens is, is they're all together, the disciples are all together, the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they begin speaking in these different tongues or in these different languages, and proclaiming the wonders of God. Then these people that have come for the uh, Passover and for Pentecost from all over the world come and hear the word of God in their own language. And they're amazed, you know, these are just, you know, these people are Galileans, but we hear them speaking in our own tongues, our own languages. And so they, they're surprised by that. And what we find out is really that this is a sign to them that this isn't something that these people have just made up on their own, but this, this is something that God is doing. Um, and it's to give a, an assurance of the testimony that they are going to receive about Jesus Christ himself. We need to remember at this time that all of these people here are multilingual people. You know, most of them spoke Hebrew, um, you know, or Aramaic from their, from their um, you know, Jewish roots, even if they lived in these other countries. Some of them didn't. Some of them dropped that and just had the Greek. Pretty much everyone spoke Greek. Um, plus, then they would speak another language from where they were from. So most of these people spoke at least three languages. You know, I mean, these are intelligent um, individuals who are, you know, capable of, of learning things quickly. Um, and so there they are listening to all of these, all of this, and they're surprised at what they're hearing because they're thinking that these people from Galilee, you know, shouldn't be able to, to speak my, you know, lang- the language that I speak in Assyria or that I speak in 
Babylon and you know what, what is going on here? Um, how can they speak this language that I, I know from my homeland in Egypt? And so they are um, amazed at what they're hearing. Now some came and said, wait, these guys are just drunk. This is all just whatever. Um, Because they're just hearing to them what sounds like a bunch of sound. And if you have a language that you've never heard before spoken, to you it sounds like a bunch of sound. You know, I mean, I did that last week where I spoke a little bit of Nahuatl. Well, butchered it, but spoke a little bit of Nahuatl. And if you don't know Nahuatl, it just sounds like sounds. You know, if you don't know that indigenous language, it just sounds like gibberish. But it's not. It's it's real communication. And... um, you know, so you get accused of this, and Peter gets up and says, hey, it's only 9 o'clock in the morning. These people aren't drunk. You know, th- this is what is happening. The prophecy from the prophet of Joel is being fulfilled. And he, and he gives the prophecy of Joel and explains that. And we end up, ended on last week in verse 21 where he says, It shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so that really begins his message about Jesus Christ. And so we're going to look more about that in that message this morning. But let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read um, the, the sermon that he gives here, the summary of it, and then we'll uh, talk about that and discuss it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us, God. We thank you for your love for us, um, that you gave us your word, that we can see what happened. We can see how the church was started we read the book of Acts, and we can learn from it and apply it in our own lives, and our own church today. Um, we thank you for your great love that sent Jesus to us as we sang you know, earlier about Jesus going to the, the cross for our sins and being raised from the dead, that the grave could not hold him, and that we have a king and savior who is ultimately victorious. And so we thank you, Jesus, that victory is found in your precious name. And it's in your name that we give thanks and praise you. Amen. So let's begin in verse 22, and let's just read uh, this message that he gives, and then we'll work our way back through it. So he says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies 
your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Uh, We'll stop there. We'll go a little bit further than that this morning. That's a good stopping point for us as we go back and examine this message um, that Peter gives because it's a very powerful message. It's not, you know, terribly long as you consider that he is now speaking uh, in front of thousands of people, you know, that are there hearing this message. We know as we continue in the chapter that there were thousands, literally thousands of people there listening to this message that um, Peter gives. And so he kind of basically has two parts of it. One, he's going to start with Jesus being as the one sent, you know, the Savior, the one sent, you know, from God. And he's at the beginning of the message, he's going to emphasize the humanity of Jesus. But then as he continues on, he's going to hit them with Jesus being more than just a man. He is God himself. Um, He is God in the flesh. And so we're going to see how he does that. Um, But let's uh, begin just at the very beginning of the words in verse 22 when he says, you know, men of Israel or, or people of Israel, I don't think he's being um, exclusive in his use of, of gender there um, because this is a message for all people, men, women, boys and girls, you know, of all, of all ages. Um, but he says, men of Israel, hear these words. Um, now, he's going to say that they're guilty, that they have killed you know, Jesus Christ. Now, some of them maybe would want to argue, wait, I didn't do that. That wasn't me that did that. But we have to understand a couple things. One is that their, um, their culture was a lot less individualistic than ours. Um, and so when one person did something, they did it as a representative of the whole community, especially when the leaders, you know, did something. And this isn't something that they just came up with on their own and said, you know, we're going to be this very communal group of people, and, and this is how we want to do things. It's actually something that God taught them um, as a people way back in the Old Testament. If you remember back to the story of Jericho, maybe as a kid you even grew up singing songs about um, the walls of Jericho coming, you know, tumbling down. Well, when God gave that great victory in Judges chapter 6, he had given the instruction that they should not take any of the plunder from that city, not to take any of the silver, not to take any of the gold, but just to leave it all be. But there was one man named Achan, and he took a bar of silver, and he dug a hole and, and you know, stuck it underneath his, his tent, and he hid it. And so, you know, he knew about it because he's the one who did it. It's, it's likely, you know, that his immediate family members may, maybe also have, have known or had seen what he had done. But then in, in chapter 7, they go to attack this little place called Ai, and um, the Lord says, don't send that many people, just send some. And so they send some, and um, the Hebrews are, are defeated. 36 men die in the battle, and they come back wondering, you know, what has, what has happened? And in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, the Lord answers Joshua and says, Israel has sinned. They have broken my covenant. Now, isn't that interesting? That really one man is responsible. It's one man's sin but then God's reply is, the nation has sinned. They have broken my covenant. 
You can go back a lot further than that to Adam and Eve and that first, you know, when our parents first sinned in the garden in disobedience to God and took the, the, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that that has had repercussions for every single human being born since then. You and I weren't in the garden, but that sin affected us. And that's a great lesson that God is always teaching, is that you know, individual sin is never just individualistic. Individual sin is always communal sin. Now, it might not be as far-reaching as an entire nation, but it is certainly, whenever I sin or whatever you sin, it affects the people around us in a negative way, and negatively. And God takes the sin of, of the individual seriously, and it has, again, it does have repercussions for um, a community. And so we need to be aware of that and understand that, um, even in the church, that we, you know, in the church we're one body. And so in a, in a church, when one person is living in a sinful way, that has repercussions and effects on the rest as a whole. And, and hopefully that causes us to take you know, our lives even more seriously before the Lord, knowing that it's not just ourselves. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, in a family too, you know, fathers, parents, you know, there's a, there's a great responsibility because our sins will always impact our children, always impact our children. And so we have to be aware of this and understand the, the high call that God gives. So when he says, men of Israel, you know, he's, yes, the whole entirety of Israel is not there, but Israel is represented, and, they're rep- and the people of Israel are represented in the crucifixion um, of Jesus. And so he says, hear these words, and that, uh, that's reminiscent of the, of the call of God throughout the book of, of Deuteronomy, Hero Israel, you know, the Shema that was uh, given, um, you know, hear, O Israel, and these instructions about God. And so he's giving that kind of, that sort of language that they would be familiar with, as they would have been reading the book of Deuteronomy, when he says, you know, men of Israel, hear these words, it's very similar to, you know, hero Israel. Uh, That Jesus of Nazareth, that he is going to have his, as his subject, this man, Jesus of Nazareth. You know, he's not talking about a made-up person. He's not talking about a fictitious character of someone's imagination. He's not talking about an allegorical story. But he's talking about, you know, a real, you know, human being that they were familiar with, that they knew, that they knew. Because again, having been there, the, everybody that's in this scene would have been on the scene at, at least from the Passover and would have, you know, been familiar with Jesus and his teachings and the crucifixion and this rumor of a resurrection. Because he says to them, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So his, his message here is, you know, I'm not telling you about something you're unaware of. I'm not telling you something about you've never heard before. I'm talking to you about something that you know, that you know. That Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Now, that's where he's beginning here in this, too, is like this isn't a surprise that happened, that this is actually part of God's plan, part of God's 
God's word. We see that throughout the Old Testament, even as we talked earlier about um, in the garden, what happened that after that fall, after that sin, and they realized that they were naked, and they had sown fig leaves for themselves, that God, you know, slaughters, you know, these, these uh, animals and gives them, you know, the animal hide to cover them, covers them in animal clothing, but there's that first shedding of blood because of sin. And that's a picture, even there, of what's going to happen. And that picture continues as you have these sacrifices in the Old Testament where a, an innocent lamb would be sacrificed because of the sins of sinful human beings. Well, we know, as the scripture says, that the you know, blood of, of you know, bulls and goats can't take away the you know, sins of, of humans. So what is it? It's a picture of what is going to happen. It's a picture of what's going to happen through the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And we also know that when Jesus was in his public ministry, that there were many times where the religious leaders wanted to kill Jesus, but were not allowed to because the timing was not right. But at this time of Passover, God removes his restraining hand and allows them to do what they had wanted to do all along which was to kill Jesus. It's just that it had to be done according, um, in a certain way. It was going to have to be done in a public way. It was going to have to be done in a way that involved the Gentiles, the Roman you know, authorities. It wasn't something that could be just done in a dark alleyway and, and hidden. It had to be public. And it had to be a cross because it had to fulfill the you know, the uh, prophecy or the, the statements of the Old Testament that cursed is everyone who hangs from a tree. It, you know, there is all these different elements to it that had to be fulfilled. And that's where you see the work of God in it. Because they would have just thrown him off a cliff like they tried to do earlier in his ministry, but he walked in between the midst of him. They would have stoned him to death. They would have done something to him earlier than they did in this time. But this was the time, the time of God. And so that's how Peter is able to say it was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. But then where's the guilt? You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So there he is, you know, putting as guilty the religious leaders that were, you know, the, all the people of Israel and the Gentiles because it was the Romans who actually, you know, nailed him to the cross and put the crowns on the throne on his heads and, you know, crucified him. But you did it through the, through the hands of, of lawless, you know, men. And he's even making a statement there that this wasn't even done in a legal fashion. It was all, you know, the trials were all of a, of a sham, you know, type of, you know, variety that the, the decisions you know, were already, were already made before any testimony would be given, that there wasn't going to be a way out. And so this is the reality that they, were, that they were guilty. But we also know another side of the story that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that we're, we're all guilty. And so in, in a physical sense, yes, there are, you know, the people at this time in the nation of Israel, the people at this time in the Romans, you know, they were guilty but in a spiritual sense, we're all guilty that it's my sin that hung him there. That it's your sin that hung him there. 
that we are, we are guilty ourselves of the blood of Jesus having to be shed. That I'm guilty and that you're guilty is a, one of the um, great you know, truths of the word of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's my sin that hung my Savior to the cross. You know, and we have to, you know, it really does have to get that personal for us to, I think for us to even be able to appreciate what Jesus did for us. It can't be what other people did and other people's sins and, you know, this is why Jesus went. We have to make it have a certain personalness to it that I am guilty in order to appreciate the cross. And so that's where, you know, he puts that argument out there, and he puts that argument out there largely on uh, the humanity of, of Jesus. But then he's going to kind of make this shift. We, we get to verse 24. It says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it, for Jesus to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell and hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So, you know, he argues here and he continues this argument about um, he's going to use David, King David, who was also a, a prophet. Um, to illustrate his point about and to, to really drive home who Jesus is and, and what he's done you know, for us. Um, and he continues it in verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would uh, set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of all that we are all of, of that we are all witnesses. So when you know Peter argues that King David couldn't be talking about himself, um, you know he's really you know emphasize, emphasizing you know King David is dead. He's dead. We know it. You know, he was our king. He was our patriarch. He was one of our great, you know, forefathers. But he was a, he's a dead man. You could go to his tomb, and you could dig up his bones. And you could see him there. So if that's true, if that's the reality that King David is doing that, you got basically two options. One, he doesn't really even have to talk about because of his audience. One is that King David was a liar and that he wasn't speaking about, you know, the things of God. Or that he's talking about someone else. And so that's the route that Peter takes. He's not talking about himself. He's talking about the Christ, the anointed one of God. He's, he's foreseeing the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the argument that Peter makes. And again, remember, he knows his audience. He has a Jewish audience, so he's using their history to prove from their own history who Jesus is. Um, and so that's what, he's, what he sets down there, that we have a risen Savior and a risen, a risen King. 
He goes to that promise that God made to David that one of his descendants would sit on, the, on his throne forever and ever. Well, if they looked at their history, did they have a king sitting on their throne of Israel at this point in time? No. They've been occupied for a long time by various nations, and currently it's the Romans that are dominant in their land. And there's a man named Caesar who views himself not just as a, even as a human king, but also as God. And he's a, you know, it's an abomination to them as, you know, as one of the gods, you know, pluralistic. And so, you know, that's what they're living under. So again, it has to be more than just a physical kingdom that's being talked about here. But it's a spiritual kingdom. It's a bigger kingdom than just that has to do with this, you know, one nation in the Middle East. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's eternal kingdom. And it's a, it's a kingdom that has Christ as its king. That Jesus Christ is the king of this kingdom. And, and he's going to talk even more um, about that. Now, I, w- I want to talk just for a minute about the importance of this, of this resurrection of Jesus, because if there is no resurrection, there is no Pentecost. There is no Peter preaching to thousands of people here. Because remember, even before going to the cross, that Peter said, you know, I would go with you to death. But then when push comes to shove, and that's not just a theoretical, you know, statement, but a real possibility, he denies and curses. He denies and curses that he even knows who Jesus is. Jesus. That yes, I know who Jesus is, but he wouldn't say, I knew Jesus and that I'm one of his followers. He distanced himself and he went away afraid and ashamed. But we know the Lord restored him, but now this is the same man. This is the same man who, you know, less than 50 days later, from when he denied Christ, less than 50 days later, He is preaching to thousands of people and saying, this man, Jesus, is the one that King David prophesied about, is the Christ whom you crucified. Now, he's saying that to people who have the full power and ability to rush him. How could he and the 120 who were there, possibly in a physical sense, just using their physical bodies, stop those thousands of people from just swarming over them and stoning them to death? as heretics, as false prophets, as, you know, whatever. We know not too much further in the book of Acts, we're going to see the first follower of Jesus preaching and being stoned to death for his preaching. This is a real possibility. It's not, if we read the book of Acts, we say, well, that's not just theoretical. So what gives Peter the courage to stand in front of these thousands of people and saying, This is Jesus Christ, our King, whom you crucified, and putting it to him. was the resurrection of Jesus that gives him the power to do that. And now he's also filled with the Spirit of God, and he's empowered by the Spirit of God. But without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter's just not even on the scene. None of this happens. We're not here today. We're just not here today. Not in this form, not in this context. We're just not. You know, people are not meeting, you know, around the Lord's table all over the world today and taking the bread and cup and remembering Jesus who died for our sins if there is no resurrection. 
it's one of those great things. I mean, you can say, we're not here if it's not for the incarnation of Jesus. You can say, we're not here without the crucifixion of Jesus. And you can say, we're not here without the resurrection of Jesus. All of those are central to who we are as a people of faith. We're talking about the Jesus of the scriptures. But he knows, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. That's where his confidence comes from. That's what his power comes from. He knew that God would not let his Holy One see corruption. He knew that. He knew that. So Peter uses the argument from the Psalms. He uses this argument, and he says in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So now he makes this connection. He makes this connection that Jesus has risen, that Jesus has gone back to the Father, that there's the promise of the Holy Spirit and that that promise has been poured out on this day, and he says, you know, this is what you're hearing and seeing. This is what you're hearing and seeing when, you know, all of these people are speaking, you know, all these Galileans are speaking in these different languages. This is what you're hearing and seeing. It's the promise that God gave us. And it's there because of the resurrection that Jesus is already exalted, that that, has, that, that um, prophecy from the Psalms has been fulfilled that that's been fulfilled. So that's Psalm 110, where he says, sit at my right hand until make your enemies my footstool. And so he says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This Jesus whom you crucified. It's also interesting to note that these... um, Quotations, again, are coming as, you know, uh, Peter is, is quoting these passages in the Old Testament. He's not quoting from the Hebrew Old Testament. He's quoting from the Greek Septuagint, again, because that's the universal language that all these people are going to understand. And so he's giving it to them in the language that, they, that it, all the people there are going to hear and know. Um, but it also means that we have a little bit of work to do because he's not using the word Yahweh, for, where he uses Lord. In your Old Testament, if you ever see L-O-R-D and they're all capitalized, that's Yahweh. You know, that's, that's the, the Hebrew word, the ultimate Hebrew word you know, for God and has to, to do with his being, that just that he, that he is. Um, and so we don't have that because he's not quoting from the... Hebrew, he's quoting from the Greek, and he's using the word kairos for Lord. And so he says that here, when he says that, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So what we learn from that, though, is that he uses the same word kairos in verses 21, 34, and 39, speaking about God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit is what he means there, but he's speaking specifically about Yahweh. And now he's using the same word to describe Jesus Christ. So now his argument has moved 
as he's talked about the resurrection, you're not just talking about a man here. You're not just talking about a man, Jesus of Nazareth, what he began with. But you're talking about the one who is both Lord and Christ. And it's interesting, that phrase, that's the only time I think you find that specific phrase, both Lord and Christ, um, in the scriptures, in the New Testament at all. You have the Lord Jesus Christ all the time. But he's really being specific here. He really wants you to know that he's Lord, that he's God, and that he is Christ, that he is the anointed one, the anointed king. As you know, we've talked about um, on a number of occasions, um, even if you remember Kevin Razo's message from Luke 24, just about the importance of that, of, of Jesus being king. Um, and so even back to Luke chapter 2, verse 11, again, there's the same writer for Luke and Acts. Luke says in verse Luke 2, 11, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That was his argument from the beginning. This is the argument of, of Luke from the very beginning, that there's going to be a Savior of the city of David. You catch that again? <laughs> you know, these themes kind of coming up um, that Luke picks up on um, you know, from the apostles, and Luke picks up on um, about David and, and what he picks up on here in the message that Peter gives, emphasizing David. That in Luke 2.11, for unto you this day is in the city of David, you know, in Bethlehem, but in the city of David, where David is from, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These things are not coincidences. It's not a coincidence that Peter is using David to prove the deity of Jesus. And um, it's not a a coincidence that Luke picks up on that and, you know, begins it in Luke chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 2. with this theme about Jesus being the Lord, both Lord and Christ, or who is Christ the Lord. This Jesus whom you crucified. So all of this is a call to the deity of Jesus Christ at this point of the message. They're going beyond Jesus being a prophet, beyond him being a teacher, to him being Lord and Christ. And that's a big deal even today, because even today, you know, a a lot of people want to follow the teachings of a man named Jesus. Well, that's different than submitting oneself to a God and king named Jesus. Those are two very different things. Because, you know, the man Jesus, the good teacher Jesus, you can say, well, I like this teaching, I agree with him on this teaching, and I, I, I don't agree with him on this teaching, and so, you know, I'll take this one and apply it, and I'm going to ignore this other one or deny this other one. And that's what you can do with the man teacher Jesus. But you can't do that anymore if he's the God and king Jesus. At that point, there has to be submission to him to submit your life to him as the king and say, not my way. As Jesus said to the Father in the garden, not mine you know, will be done but yours, we say to Jesus, not my will be done but yours. If we're going to take him who he is as king, then our options become much more limited. 
We need to understand that. You know, by definition, for Jesus to be king means that I'm not. By definition, for Jesus to be king means that he's the one who should be leading and directing and guiding our lives and our church and not me, not us. That's what that means. And so, you know, because we're always being asked, well, what do you want to do when you grow up? Some of us, you know, some people, you know, still being 35, 40 years old are still answering that question. Well, what do you want to be when you grow up? But, you know, we ask that question in the sense of, well, we, what we really mean by that, I think most of the time, is what do you as an individual human being, want to do with your life. Where is all the possessiveness there? It's in the individual. It's in the individual. What do you want to do with your life? We start that from when we're little kids. What do you want to be when you grow up? You are the ultimate deciding factor in your life. Is what we get taught from when we're real little all the way through especially in our cultural context. I think sometimes we need to be asking a different question. What does Jesus want you to be when you grow up? What does Jesus want you to do? What does he want you to be? What does he want you to do? What does he want you to know in this next year of your life? Who's king here? And I think that's really the ultimate problem for us is that, you know, on, on Sunday mornings we sing that Jesus is king. And Sunday afternoon through the next Sunday morning, we live as if I'm king or you're king. That's what happens a lot of times, just, in, just being real in real life. And so we acknowledge that Jesus is king with our lips, but oftentimes we deny that Jesus is king with our, our actions and our decisions and who's making those and why those are being made. Challenging prayer. Let's throw out a challenging prayer. Lord, ask me to do something this week that I don't want to do. So I can show that you're king in my life. Ask me to do this week something that I don't want to do. So I can show that you're king in my life. So what happens as Peter gives this message? He stops there when he says, This Jesus whom you crucified... In verse 36, he makes that claim, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain, let you know this without any doubt, that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And he stops. He stops. Now, why does he stop? Because he knows what the Holy Spirit, what Jesus promised about the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised about the Holy Spirit in John 16, 
verses 8 through 11. And when he comes, he will convict the world, convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So Peter knows that it's not just him giving this message, but that the Holy Spirit is also at work here. He knows that because of all the things that have already happened that day. He's got great confidence as he preaches that something bigger than just his words you know, is, is happening here. He's done his best to lay out the case for Jesus to his people. But now you have the response it says, now when they heard this, verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Brothers, what shall we do? Now, they don't use that term brother like we use it in the church today, like my brother in Christ. I mean, they're talking about it in terms of, you know, we're Hebrews, we're Israelites, my you know, brothers, what we're, we have a collective, I, I, you know, connected identity, even though we're from all these different places. At our root, you know, we're, we're Israelites. We're Hebrews. Brothers, what shall we do? But again, notice they were cut to the heart. The Holy Spirit had done the work of the Holy Spirit and convicted them in their hearts. And, and this is something that we believe about the role of the Holy Spirit in the world. We believe that, you know, we can preach till we're blue in the face. But unless the Holy Spirit convicts a person of sin, then not much is going to happen. But we also can have confidence that we know that this is what the Holy Spirit does. So we preach with confidence, knowing that the Holy Spirit will convict people of sin. So we hold those things in tension. We hold them together. But it, what that helps is, it helps, us, it helps for Peter and helps for anyone preaching the word of God today to know that it's not just about their words. But if there's not the work of God at play, those words are just going to fall on deaf ears and it's not really worth the air that was used in preaching it. But they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So now they're, they're open. They're open because they understand, they've recognized their own guilt. They recognize what they've done, what they've been a part of, even their guilt by association for some of them. But they know that they're guilty. And they go, what shall we do? And that's where Peter goes in again. You know, he had stopped the message and gone, okay, what's the response? And now he restarts it. With now what are you going to, you know, when they say, what shall we do? Now he's got full open door. So he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Let's stop there for a minute. 
So the first thing he says to do is to repent. And there's a lot in that one word. Because yeah, it, it means to, to turn from, it it's basically means a 180 degree turn. Turn from what you used to believe in, from what you used to you know, do, from everything in your old self, and now you're turning to Christ. That's the, re, the repentance. And then he wants them to do this other thing. He wants them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. He wants them to make a public identification with who Jesus is. That, that, that's a public sign of this new beginning. Now, what we have to be careful for, I have to tell you that this verse has been misused and abused a lot of times. It says, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. Most, I, I'm using that translation today because most of your Bibles are going to say, for the forgiveness of your sins. There's a Greek word, eis, E-I-S, and it's a preposition, and it can be translated in terms of, it can be translated for, it can be translated because of, it can be translated into many different verbs. It's kind of like translator's choice on that one when it comes to which English verb to translate that Greek verb into. The for can give um, us and how we use the word for a little bit of the wrong connotation as if they're being baptized and that's like they're being forgiven from their sins. That's not what Peter means here. It's not what he means um, consistently or the other apostles or Jesus means um, as they teach the good news of Jesus throughout the New Testament. We see clearly throughout the New Testament that belief is the key essential element, that it is the lowest common denominator. It is the base for everything else is belief. It's belief. Faith in Jesus Christ. So there are some groups, though, in some churches who will take this and say you have to be baptized um, for the remission of your sins. The better explanation is that we are baptized because of the remission of our sins. Because I've repented, because Jesus has saved me, now I'm baptized publicly to show that and to identify myself with him. Um, We have... More informa- a lot of more information on that. I can give you a copy um, on that issue. We've got four pages here on uh, that subject that will look through a lot of the scriptures you know, with you just on salvation and baptism. And um, we'll make a more thorough argument than I have time to make this morning. Uh, we can give you that printed, PDF, um, whatever. So just ask for it if that's something you want to know more about and you want to ex- you know, study and examine. Um, but I don't want to lose everything else in the message this morning by just being hung up on that one um, phrase, even though it's an important phrase and it's important teaching and important for you to under, understand. Uh, but we know that the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, is what the scripture says. That that's the baseline. This gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who believes. Um, Baptism is important. We plan on having a baptism here um, in a few weeks. If you have never been baptized as a, you know, from when you've repented, you know, and believed in Jesus, from that point, if you have not been baptized yet, we encourage you to be baptized as a public profession of your faith. There's a good number of people in this room who have been baptized as part of this, this church. Um, many of us who aren't, aren't here this morning that have been baptized as part of this church. But mostly, the key thing there is to show the identification 
that one is with Jesus. And he said he also promised them that they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we know from Ephesians chapter 1, verse 14, that the Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. So the Lord gives us the Holy Spirit as a guarantee, as a gift. And he says in verse 39, For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So what, what we would say with that is, hey, this is an awesome message because when Peter says that, hey, it's, it's for you, and it's not just for you, it's for generations to come. So we've got time taken care of. Um, and it's for all who are afar off. Well, who is afar off? Everyone. You know, everyone without Christ is afar off. Everyone who's, who is without Christ is far away from Christ. And yet, as Paul tells us when he's preaching in Acts, that God is not far from each one of us. So it's, it's kind of this, um, it, it's not really a contradiction. It's just that you can be really close, to, you know, to faith in God. But if it's not actually there, that's a great distance. It's a far off. Because there isn't, um, it's, not, it's not like horseshoes where you can get some credit for being close. It's not like that. You know, so, you know, it's for everyone who recognizes that they're a sinner, that they have a part in the crucifixion of Jesus, and they want forgiveness, want forgiveness of their sins, and to walk in newness of life. And it says, for everyone the Lord our God calls to himself. And so with that we ask, is this the time that, of God's calling in your life? Is it for you now, you know, hearing this message? Is God calling you to himself? Because, you know, we, we know there have been many times, you know, just hear so many testimonies of people hearing the word of God preached. And, what, and they, there's like almost this common theme for a lot of people, not for everyone, for a lot of people, but it was like, you know, there, nobody else was there, and it was just the word, the message was for, for me to hear and to know it. And, and you know what's happening in that moment is that, you know, God is calling out to that person to be reconciled to himself through the convicting work of the Holy Spirit and through the message of the word. And so all of those are working together, but that person still has a responsibility to respond, and that's why Peter continues in verse 40. It says, And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort. That's encouragement with emphasis, with oomph. Continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So here we have um, their responsibility to respond. So we got the short message of Peter. And now it says, Luke says, with many other words, which, uh, you know, may have been multiple chapters long if they had been recorded for us. Because he's probably going to go back through the Old Testament and show them many more things about how Jesus is the Christ. But he encourages them, he exhorts them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Well, how do they save themselves? Well, they don't save themselves by doing good works. 
They don't save themselves by going to the temple more. They don't save themselves by doing more sacrifices. They don't save themselves by giving more money. They save themselves by repenting, turning from their false beliefs and ideas and believing in Jesus Christ as their Savior and King. That's how they save themselves from this crooked generation, from this perverse generation. Man, does that message not resonate today? Now think about this. If the scripture tells us that there were devout Israelites, you know, these are very religious people, but they're devout, and they're from all over the world, and the description of them in the generation that they live in, you know, save yourselves from this crooked generation, What would the message be in our times and in our cultural context? We say, save yourselves from this crooked generation. And I think that's a message that the church today is scared to give. The church today is scared to call sin, sin. Yet in the context of the Roman pluralistic society, the message of Jesus was that he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. And a message where all sorts of sin is happening, John the Baptist loses his head because he calls what Herod has done in taking his brother's wife for himself is sinful. And he loses his head for it because he stepped into the political arena and said, this culturally is sin. What our leader is doing is sinful. He loses his head for it. But today, somehow, the church has lost its willingness and ability to call sin, sin, and at the same time give hope. Because what we have on one side is just a message of God's judgment and God's wrath. But a lot of times there's not... It's truth, but it lacks love. And on the other side, you have love, but it lacks truth. And so it's really not love at all. When he says, save yourselves from this crooked generation, he means it. You know, don't go down with the ship. You don't have to. That's what he's kind of getting to them there. But then it says in verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized. That also goes to the importance of the order of they received the word, then they were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added that the church grew from 120 to about 3,120 in one day. That's pretty awesome. Pretty great. We'd like to be part of something like that. Um, you know, in, in Mexico, we've seen a couple of times, I've been, you know, I've, I've, I've seen it with my own eyes when almost an entire village of people has come to believe in Jesus at one time. I've seen that twice, where the people hear the gospel and there's this mass repentance with almost everyone on their face before God weeping, you know, beating their chest saying, God, forgive me. God, forgive us. 
And I think that's a, I mean, that's just a little taste, you know, multiply, you know, that by 30 or 40 of what we have happen here at Pentecost when these people, 3,000 at one time, repent and are baptized. That's a beautiful thing. But we also have to understand that's not normative, even in the book of Acts. It's usually this person, that person, a small group of people, a family. Like the, the church grew, you know, kind of exponentially here um, in Acts chapter 2, and it continues to grow exponentially, but it grows exponentially by, you know, little groups of people and individuals and families being added to day after day after day. And it's the daily grind of sharing the good news of Jesus that accomplishes that. And that's, going to be, that's the same thing true you know, in Mexico. There's a lot of churches that have been started out of that one church. And yes, there have been a couple times where a church has started in a day. Literally, we've seen that. But the reason that the church has expanded as it's expanded is because of the daily grind of the missionaries to share the gospel day after day after day after day with person after person after person, family after family after family. And so, you know, I'm all for it. I'm all for us praying until there's a move of the Spirit. I'm all for us praying until there's a massive repentance in in Athens, Georgia. We want to do that. Let's do that. Let's ask God for that and do that. But I'm also, we've got to deal with this reality that after this happens, it's the daily grind. And if you don't want to do the daily grind, there's really not much point in praying for the awesome, miraculous day of Pentecost type of experience because that'll be short-lived and it'll die out. But it's the, it's the daily grind that has to be there. And maybe that's not the, the right terminology because there's a joy to it. There is a joy to it, but I don't want to say that it's not work. That, that sharing, trying to share the gospel with people consistently in your life is work. It's difficult and it's full of disappointment. Because you get a lot of people who are just going to say no to you. You know, and if you take that all personally, it's going to be pretty rough. So there's a joy to it, but I don't want to, I don't want to take away the side of it that for the church to grow like we see in the book, throughout the book of Acts, it was a lot of work. And so I just don't want us to have an illusion. You know, we get together and have a little prayer meeting, and then God does something, and then we're all like hip, hip, hooray, and everything else. It's just not how it happened then, and it's not how it happens today. It's work. Um, it, but the great side of it is that Jesus told us that the harvest is great, and it was great when he said it in the Gospels, and it's great today. The harvest is great in this world, and we talked about last week how we can't just view that as something for out there in some other place, other country. We have to believe that the harvest is great for Athens, Georgia. And so let's have that faith and pray toward that end and work toward that end. The pray and the work. So may God help us to apply his word. As we take the bread and the cup today, I would just challenge each one of us to pray that little just simple prayer that, Lord, this week asked me to do something I don't want to do. 
and show that you're king. And show that you're king. Ask me to do something that I don't want to do this week. Because that really, that's, that is the path to growth. That's the path to growth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the word that you've given us. We thank you that it's challenging in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that you worked in such mighty power at Pentecost. And Lord, we ask that you would work among us with your mighty power in whatever way that you see fit and in whatever your timing is, God. But Lord, help us to be open to your work in our lives, in our hearts and through us. Help us to be willing to confess sin. Help us to be willing to lay down anything that hinders us from following you more fully. Help us to be willing to do the things that in our flesh we don't want to do. That you, Jesus, will be king of our lives. Um, Lord, help us to be willing to call sin, sin, and to give hope in your son, Jesus. Help us to have love and truth balanced in our lives, in our church, in our ministry, Lord. And as we take this um, bread and this cup, I pray that you would help us to be a sober people, but also a, a joyful people, um, an encouraged people this morning, because we have a Savior, we have a King, who has conquered sin and death, and who is risen, and who will return. So of all people, we should be most hopeful, the most hopeful people in the world, because our hope is in you, dear Jesus. We ask it in your precious name.